welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So thanks again to all of you that are supporting the podcast via Patreon. Your support is making these episodes and this qualitative research series possible. So we're up to episode 7 of the qualitative research series. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Anna Riala about critical theory. Anna originally trained as a physiotherapist at Perkhamma University of Applied Sciences in Finland and then pursued a Master of Arts in Philosophy, Politics and Economics of Health at UCL in London. She recently completed a PhD in Humanities at the Centre for Applied Philosophy, Politics and Ethics at the University of Brighton in the UK. And her thesis analysed the relationship between theory and practice of the critical theorist Theodore Adorno's philosophy and her work rereads the relationship in the context of ethical theories and concepts used in physiotherapy. And currently Anna is working as a researcher at Tampere University in Finland, in which she's analysing global physiotherapy discourses on dementia, politics and economics. She's also co-chair of the Critical Physiotherapy Network, in which I've had several members of the network on the podcast, including... David Nichols and Philip Marich. And the next episode is with Dr. Jenny Setchell, who's also one of the founders of the Critical Physiotherapy Network. Anna's research interests include German and French philosophy, medical humanities, ethics, politics of effect, and philosophy and global political economy of dementia, mental health, incontinence and rehabilitation. And finally, Anna has published on the embodied value of long-term care and critical physiotherapy ethics. And she's currently preparing both single and co-authored publications on critical discourse analysis and a critical reading of Shakespeare's character, Richard III. So she's perfectly qualified to walk us through the maze of critical theory. So in this episode, we speak about Critical theory is a framework for pursuing qualitative inquiry. The reach of critical theory into political, social and economic life. And we speak about how qualitative research, which is situated in critical theory, looks to challenge the taking for granted assumptions, social norms and practices, and the understanding of discourses and power inequalities. We talk about how critical theory is also critical of itself and has gone some way to evolving away from its Marxist roots. We talk about how critical research tries to go beyond merely describing the social world and its problems, but has a moral focus on change, action and emancipation as a result of the knowledge it generates. Finally, Anna shares some of her own research using her critical theory lens and offers advice for those wanting to begin to explore and think with critical theory. So this was such an interesting and enlightening conversation with Anna. As you'll hear, I was somewhat daunted 
by the theoretical, social and political weight and breadth of critical theory, but fortunately Anna held my hand firmly and skillfully guided me through the conversation. Whilst perhaps we didn't dive deep into critical theory, as we would never have likely resurfaced, I think that we covered sufficient ground to introduce some of its major premises and positions and hope it provides an entrance point for those wanting to learn more. I know it certainly did for me. So I bring you Dr. Anna Riala. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to get to speak with you about critical theory, given that it's such a kind of omnipresent theoretical framework within qualitative research, and given that I'm hugely limited in knowledge in relation to the theory, and pretty daunted by its kind of richness and depth and historical, social, economic, political threads to it. So I'm super pleased to get to speak to you, and you're able to clarify all of that for me. Well, <laughs> let's hope so. <laughs> so maybe you could start just by telling us a bit about yourself, your academic work and your journey into critical theory. Sure. So I'm a physiotherapist by profession. And um, I guess my journey into critical theory starts from, well, way back because I've I've been interested in philosophy and um, politics before. I actually graduated in 2008, so just in the wake of the financial crash. So it was really unavoidable not to encounter political and economic issues, even in the clinic. So I wanted to study an MA and something to do with philosophy, politics and economics. And um, after I graduated, I wanted to do a PhD and I, I did that in critical theory applied to rehabilitation or physiotherapy ethics. And now I'm kind of venturing more into political science. So I'm working in a project at Tampere University in Finland that's called Assembling Post-Capitalist International Political Economy, in which we look at different kind of non-capitalist and capitalist sites in which you know, kind of we could create radical new openings for rethinking economy and politics. And I'm looking at dementia and rehabilitation and how to kind of deconstruct or reread the economic discourse of dementia within rehabilitation research. I was going to say, before you mentioned about the dementia aspect, I was going to say that's a world away from rehabbing ACL tears as a physio to, to, to kind of capitalism and economics and politics, but then you kind of slipped in the dementia aspect of your current work. So you've kept the kind of healthcare thread of your kind of intellectual work. Yeah, physiotherapy and rehabilitation, they always, I always carry them with me, um, whatever I do academically speaking. So yeah, it's um it's something that I am still interested in, although I'm not doing any clinical work at the moment. But I do want to focus on on healthcare and physiotherapy and rehabilitation 
even if I'm doing more political and philosophical work. And so I suppose just setting, kind of laying out what you and I both want to try and get from this conversation and also probably be probably to be quite frank with the listeners that we've been grappling with how to pitch this given the size of the the topic and given that the focus of the series is around kind of qualitative research and how to do it what it means but I think what, what we'll both try and do during this conversation is to try and tie the key aspects of the theory and even recognizing within critical theory, there are almost going to be sub theories or sub positions and in different different aspects. But as best we can, just you know, lay some of those out to begin to get some kind of purchase on what this idea is or what the notion of critical theory is, and then link some of it to qualitative research and how this theoretical perspective or paradigm might inform the sorts of questions and foci of qualitative researchers. You haven't got to agree to that. It was just me kind of premising the... Yeah. <laughs> premising the whole thing. We might not do any of that and <laughs> talk about Foucault for an hour. <laughs> yeah, let's see how it goes. <laughs> I mean, let's. where do we start? I think if we start from... If someone was going to ask you in a pub when pubs or bars were open, but when they do open and they know nothing about critical theory... But they say, Anna, what's critical theory all about? What would you say? How, what would be the simple answer you'd convey to them? Well, I guess the simplest way would be to begin with criticism, obviously, because it's in the title. So critical theory must be critical of something. And that something for critical theory is society. And its claim is that the society is kind of permeated with structures and discourses that are oppressive and they advance inequalities. And then there's, there needs to be a way to analyze those, those social ills. So I guess that would be the easiest way to explain critical theory. So it has an object that it claims to be something worthy of yeah. of criticism. But then there's always the other side of criticism that goes with critical theory is that it must be also self-critical. So it doesn't take itself to be any kind of infallible theory or the last word about society or inequalities or oppression or anything like that. So it is a way to look at these problems that prevail in society. I think it's a really, it was a nice, easy explanation to thank you. Yeah, I think it's uh, the way you set the question that really helps to kind of think about critical theory in a more practical sense. Because it's really easy to go off on a tangent and and explain all these, you know, roots and backgrounds and and like theoretical stuff that, you know, might not be easy to grasp. Just touching on that, I suppose the intricacies and the the reach of the theory into different corners of social life that we're going to do our best to try and situate critical theory close we can to to doing research or qualitative research. But as I mentioned offline, and as we said, is that it's 
it's a much bigger kind of movement, isn't it? It's a much bigger, or rather it has implications for so many aspects of life, not necessarily doing research. So, and I think this is where the, where it became daunting for me, where it was both a research paradigm, the kind of critical paradigm, but it had all this baggage underneath it. Baggage just sounds like a derogatory term, but not, I don't mean it drugs term, but lots of stuff which underpins it. And so maybe just, just mention something about it. Are you able to separate out critical theory as a research paradigm approach framework from critical theory as a kind of political social stance? That is a really central question, actually, for, for critical theory, because although some critical theorists, they might look at you know, cultural interest industry or things that seemingly have, have nothing to do with like immediate social problems. But it, it is always difficult to kind of separate within those theories what might be philosophy, what's aesthetics, what's politics. But I think if we think about from the perspective of doing qualitative research, I would say that focusing on the motivation of of critical theory would be the kind of place to start and then kind of trying to figure out how these kind of theoretical strands play into it because one of the kind of driving driving forces of critical theory is actually to focus on the real material objects the real social situations and where kind of theory comes in is in the concepts that it uses to understand the reality or the real material uh, historical moment that we are looking at now. So it can sound really abstract sometimes, but in a sense, the, the to me at least, the kind of interplay between observing real I don't like using the word, word real, but there's no better way to <laughs> express this perhaps now. Observing the real contexts, the real clinical context, for example, that should always come first. And then the concepts that are kind of used to look at the context, you know, come almost second in, in a way. So, yeah. Critical theory is always kind of it is materialistic, as you know philosophers would say. So it, it is always kind of embedded in in the context, in in history, in the practices that we face. I, I don't think we want to touch on because you mentioned real. You said the word real, and is it real? Is it, did you mean real? And my understanding is that critical theory says that kind of reality is a is this kind of historical thing which is there but is shaped by power and historical context and events all those kind of things yeah it's it's the the social practices and material practices that construct the reality that's why i try to avoid using reality perhaps or the word reality because it it has different meanings in different types of theory so perhaps the word concrete would be a better way to explain the object of and the, the research object of critical theory. That it is something real in the sense that it is concrete, but it is also the result of our practices and ideology 
and politics, finances and everything. So it is not something that's out there, but it is something that we are we are living all the time, every moment. And so I suppose we can kind of say in summary, and this is not, I set myself up for failure here to summarize any of this, but but it's something about it perceives that there's an oppressed and an oppressor that it goes into a situation i suppose as a researcher you might go into the into the field or think about your research problem as you know with those ideas in mind that there's some oppressed oppressor marginalization so you mentioned the oppressor and the oppressed i think one thing to note about that would be that it's not always conscious. It's not something that we deliberately do. It's not something that, for example, by using, you know, measurements in in our clinical practices, uh, which is something that does shape the understanding of the body in, in physiotherapy into the kind of physiotherapeutic body. It's not, it's not something that we do deliberately or it's not malicious in any way but these are just those things that we need to be aware of and that they always have consequences ethical consequences and political consequences even if we don't really immediately see them and there are some historical social historical reasons so why you know why physiotherapists are measuring patients range of motion why they're doing that and why isn't the patient measuring the physiotherapist's range of motion? I mean, these are that there is a reason why it's the physiotherapist and they are able to measure and they have knowledge and have skills and there is some kind of power inequality there. Yeah, which maybe the the, the clinician has really no idea about or isn't trying to make it unequal, but it's just by virtue of their their professional status and their kind of social status that these power inequalities are there. There's always a power power imbalance or inequality between someone who's professional and someone who's who's not. But then there's always also the fact that the patient is the best. You know, they know the best about what what's going on in their bodies, and and so there's there are it, it always also goes kind of both ways. But politically and ethically speaking, the kind of the power imbalance between the physiotherapist and the patient in which the physiotherapist does have the kind of tools to decide things for the patient and you know it's it's something that yeah as i said we need just need to be aware of it and and that is also something that critical theory would be really good to kind of use as a lens to understand because it's not just random, is it? It's not randomly. It didn't randomly happen that the physiotherapist is. There is a kind of, a, I suppose, a a series of events that took place over many many years, which led to the physiotherapist or the healthcare professional or doctor holding a certain position and holding a certain amount of power, and likewise with the patient or holding the power over the patient that it didn't just spring into thin air but there's a historical kind of social kind of set of events or movements which led up to that yes definitely one major being of course the the rise of the modern science and modern medicine which you know to some extent have been challenged with different kinds of concepts such as you know patient centeredness or the biopsychosocial model so 
it's not it's not just it's not just critical theory that does the challenging. There are also different kind of theories and concepts and and frameworks that try to challenge or diminish the absolute power of scientific knowledge. So I guess this is where maybe a summary might be helpful. Is where we say something like qualitative research, which is situated within a kind of critical paradigm or critical qualitative research or critical approaches to qualitative research, however you play around with the words. It's about challenging assumptions. So this assumed this assumed position of patient and practitioner, the kind of assumed taken for granted kind of structures and kind of social landscape. And you know, this is the way society works. But it takes it so that's when it comes back to your kind of critique. It starts with criticizing these assumptions, challenging convention, understanding discourses and kind of resistance, power, truth, those sorts of things. Yes, definitely. Uh, there's, you know, the challenging the gi- givens or the assumptions and and the taken for granted is is one major theme in in critical theory, and it always has been. And this has to do with the idea that there are some structures and things that we kind of well take for granted and don't really recognize that there are things that influence us. For example, knowledge is one, you know, a clear theme, a, a useful theme here. So how, how knowledge shapes us, shapes our relationships, and how it is something that can be exercised as a form of power. It strikes me as a kind of, it's something about challenging those things which are, as you said, are just givens that you don't, that you can kind of just go through your go through life, if you like, without really thinking about in, unless you have a framework by which to, to critique them. Yeah, and, and just the idea that nothing's sacred when it comes to criticism. And that also means, as I said in the beginning, that also means that critical theory itself is not safe from criticism, that it all, always should be critical of itself. And that really relates to the kind of Marxist roots too as you mentioned um in the beginning that it, it it is kind of based based on marxist thinking but for critical theory the consequences of marxism how it was put to practice supposedly is something that they absolutely abhor so there's the kind of soviet marxism that turned violent and that's something that you know makes them makes critical theorists in a sense read marx more closely but also criticizing the kind of dogmatic Marxism that was and had horrible, horrible consequences. So you can be, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll put it to you. You can be a critical theorist, but reject Marx and what he stood for. The theory has developed away, if you like, from that kind of classical Marxism that you can kind of subscribe to to the more contemporary ideas, but not at the same time subscribing to kind of traditional Marxism or some of the abhorrent things that maybe he stood for. And I don't know Marx, so I'm off my area here. Yes, yeah, so you are absolutely correct there. So again, being critical means that if you would take everything that Marx said as a given, that wouldn't be critical. 
same goes for for any any type of theory. If if we look at Foucault or or any other theorist as a kind of oracle that they have answers to everything, and that's the wrong. That's definitely the wrong approach for being critical. But yeah, you can definitely be be a, a critical theorist without. Being a communist, yeah, or taking everything that Marx said, or or the consequences of of his theory, or the later readings by Lenin and Stalin, as um, something that you should kind of internalize and and believe and think that yeah, this is great. I guess it's a bit like Heidegger being in the Nazi Party. You're not necessarily subscribing to his Nazism, but may appreciate his phenomenology or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and there's. A kind of useful because I, I I think about Heidegger a lot and and you know hear people saying that you know you can't really read read his work because of his affiliation with the Nazi Party but there's a useful idea in critical theory that the author is really dead that if we read any any type of work from the point of view of biography that you know this must be why. Marx said this or that, or Heidegger, you know, formulated this kind of theory because he was, the, you know, a Nazi or a communist or whatever. But then, you know, because texts, they always have a life of their own. And you as a as a critical theorist or any type of researcher, you have every right to change, re-argue, restructure what has been said. And I guess that brings me to a really kind of, well, a sort of central kind of practice of critical theory that it is always the the reader, the researcher, the philosopher who kind of takes takes material, takes text, takes the research object, and through their own practice, own critical practice, reassembles whatever you know has has been taken. So it's not about copying or taking something as it is and applying it in a way that, or in the sense that, you know, I have this piece, this critical piece, and I have this empirical object, and I'm going to smash them together. And now this is crit- being critical. But there's always the subjectivity, the practice of the researcher, of the critic in between that applying or the <laughs> smashing of the object to the theory. Yeah. And certainly it's one thing that critical theory isn't, or if you're conducting research within that paradigm, it doesn't look to be neutral, does it? I mean, it takes a very particular view, takes a particular side, if you like, that it looks to, it seeks to emancipate those who are, as we said, oppressed or marginalized. And my understanding is that that it's not just enough for critical research to describe this oppression, for example, but actually, in many cases, it looks to change it or to create some sort of improvement, if you like, in the in the participants' worlds or or lives. So, I'm not sure if you want to say something about that and the kind of the emancipatory kind of aspect of critical work, whereas as a researcher, as a quality researcher you might go into the field to look to have some conceptual understanding of you know what's going on the sorts of relationships people are having you might even go in and look to try to understand the power relationships but critical theory goes a little step further and says actually we've got there's a moral duty to change this 
Yes, that is the central motivation of critical theory. And um, if we think about criticism in general, it kind of does assume that there needs to be something that is not quite right, that needs to be changed. Uh, But critical theory doesn't want to or it claims that it can't or it shouldn't really kind of dictate whatever that better might be because that would again kind of fall into that dogmatic view of emancipation that you know this is wrong and this might be better so we have to somehow get yeah. there you need this yes and yeah kind of top down yeah exactly it's it's that would be a kind of authoritarian yeah way you know critical theory can't dictate the path or you know the the image or the utopian or the change yeah yeah on on the other side of things critical theory is also expressly or at least tries to be open about its own kind of ideological and um, theoretical assumptions so the kind of self-awareness and self-criticism again about the kind of the desire or the will to change the world is not in some respects it's not a neutral proposition it always kind of has a a normative side to it to say that you know whatever we're looking at here there's oppression and it's wrong that's a normative statement and it shouldn't be there that's another normative statement so there's a kind of it's not value neutral there there are always value judgments going on in these kinds of propositions where we need to change a practice that's for example oppressive you know, I'm thinking about this notion of value-ladenness or neutralness, value-laden or value-freeness. So, so in the critical paradigm, that there are values which inform the research approach, if you like, and the kind of questions which are asked and the the gaze of the of the researcher. I suppose that this notion there is there is no is there, is there value-free research? I guess positivism and science would say that we're able to strip out values and do everything we can to be objective and to not let the researchers value bleed into into the the kind of field if you like but other qualitative research paradigms are also value laden so whether it's the constructivist paradigm or feminism or all these different kind of theories they're all biased and i mean that in a not a derogatory sense that they've all got a particular agenda if you like or a particular thing that they care about yeah and and that's a positive thing to me. And thinking about value-ladenness or, or the idea that, that there would be research that's not in any way value-laden, that would be value-free, it is a kind of ideology in the sense that, you know, because I, I personally don't believe that such thing is, a pos- is possible because if you claim that your approach is objective, for example, if we look at research articles that you know avoid using the word i they avoid using the you know expressing that there are people behind this piece of research and to me that's you know it's kind of artificial isn't it i mean it's completely that the, the work was written and this was written by ai or something but it was written by people and if, even, even if it's scientific quantitative research where 
the endeavor is to be as objective as possible. Nonetheless, the research was conducted by people and likely involved people as participants. So it's curious. Again, it's about challenging those those norms or those traditions. Well, we've always done it that way, or this yeah. is what science is, and it's the right way to do research. Yeah, I think there's there's two two kind of sides to challenging the idea of, of objectivity. The first is to challenge the the very idea whether objectivity is possible, but the other one is challenging whether the ideal of of striving for objectivity is what any kind of research should be about. I mean, there are obviously for quantitative research, there are positive effects of trying to make your your research participants as homogenous as possible and all of that. But it, it is always a staged situation to look at, at this critically. It's not to say that you shouldn't do quantitative research and you shouldn't you know, try to achieve the ideal that it it is something that is again constructed. It's not something that's out there, but it is something that we have kind of, it, it, it is a contract mm. between researchers that this is what objectivity looks like. And these are the things that you you need to do in order to get there. And it wouldn't be to say that, yeah, you you shouldn't do that, but it's just kind of bringing into consciousness that issues and the questions and the kind of criticism of those ki- kinds of things that are are taken for granted in quantitative research and and to some extent i guess in also qualitative and and theoretical research too and and so what do you when thinking about whether or not to to situate one's research in the critical paradigm or use critical theory to kind of shape your qualitative study let's say they're synonymous i suppose You've got to. You've obviously got to subscribe to the theory because that's the that's the lens that you're viewing the entire kind of research problem and research field, if you like, and the research question. I wonder how much personally, given that critical theory can be a kind of personal position to hold, it invades so many aspects of life. You might walk down the street as a as a non researcher and just kind of notice, see things in a kind of critical theory way if you like you would see the oppression or the marginalization or all those discrimination i wonder how much that you whether or not compared to other kind of research paradigms or frameworks you've got to kind of live the theory yourself so it needs to be congruent you've got to have a kind of your your own personal view or personal position has to be congruent with your research position and i wonder how different that you think that is compared to other kind of research approaches where you can just put your little hat on, which says I'm a interpretivist, but actually, you know, in my spare time or my daily life, I'm actually a strong positivist and I believe in science and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, it's interesting because it, only because the, the how much critical theory has invaded political discourse and media discourse and social life that it's hard to avoid mm. it. That's a really interesting question because I would say that you. I do believe that there's that you can't really really think through a theory unless you have really understood it and really kind of internalized it but in a critical sense. And what I mean by that is that you don't just as I said before you don't just read the bit of the theory and think oh yes you know I I definitely see a Foucauldian thing there and 
And, you know, because critical theory doesn't work that way. But it's another question whether that is something that we should, as critical theorists, enact in our everyday life. But I think it's it's kind of avoidable. If, if you think about believing in what you do and believing in that theoretical framework that you are thinking through, then it's it's really difficult not to, or it's really difficult to be kind of a switch off and, and trying to be something else in your spare time. Yeah. I, I think you're completely right. I think you've answered it really well. And I think it was a, you said it was an interesting question. I don't think it is that. I think the simple answer is, it's a bit like, you know, when I was a PhD student, when I supervised doctoral students, you're supposed to say something like, pick a kind of paradigm which is con- or think when you're thinking about the paradigm that you're going to situate your research in it needs to be congruent or think about how you see the world how do you see you know patient clinician interactions how do you see clinical practice how do you see access to healthcare what what are your and i suppose that and that will be as you go through something like a, a phd or, or or a masters that will change as you learn more but i think that it does end up settling there's some kind of arrival at a position which you personally view this area of this field but also is congruent with the paradigm or theory which you're going to view it with so so i think you're right i I don't think and i think with qualitative research given that the participatory nature of the researcher that it very much does matter the personal views that they hold because it's value laden that it would be weird if you were pro-oppression and marginalization in your personal life and then went and did a, a critical piece of research looking at marginalization and oppression in, in a different field because it is subjective, that it's, it's the very being of the researcher which shapes the research problem and the analysis and the questions which are asked that you can't just disaggregate the two, that they're very much entwined. Yeah, I would say that it's almost impossible to to do that. And, and, and arguably not ideal. Like the, we, we presume that if we can separate it, then we can be objective and we can park our... But I think you would very much be critical about your views. But it would if you're going kind to of sensitize by the theory, mm. then the sorts of research that you're going to conduct and the kind of questions you're going to ask and your analysis will be much more kind of insightful. Yeah. I think if if one doesn't believe in in the research that one does, I mean, be it quantitative, qualitative, or theoretical, it can't result into a deep, kind of thoughtful piece of research. It it, it always remains somehow superficial, and um, the theories that we kind of start to, as you mentioned you know, if, if you're being a PhD researcher and, and kind of getting into theory, theory, I mean, you have to ha- have that initial interest in, or, or the views that kind of go with the theory that you're using, but also, also the theory starts to shape who you are. So it is, I think it it, it is unavoidable. If you really internalize or re- you really understand mm. your theory or your paradigm or your your t- whatever tools that, that you are using in in research, and it does come, it it becomes kind of inseparable from your subjectivity. Yeah, no, it's really nicely put, and I think 
I think it might be uh, one way to one way to go now is to think about the breadth of critical theory means that the sorts of qualitative research which can be conducted from that position are pretty broad that it's not it's not critical theory isn't a form of research like grounded theory or um I suppose ethnography or thematic analysis or conversation analysis, whereas critical theory is at a higher level, I think macro level, it's a kind of broader level, more abstract level where it has greater reach. So the theory in itself informs it informs methodologies and subsequent well, it doesn't it, I mean it does inform methods, but the methods themselves don't change too much. I mean these there aren't specific data collection methods which are unique to critical theory. They're going to be interviews, observations, textual analyses. Maybe, and I think we can maybe draw upon your own work here, where you've taken a critical theorist position, but used phenomenology to understand patient-centeredness in the context of rehabilitation, or was it rehabilitation in the context of yeah, neurological neurological yeah. rehabilitation? So maybe just say if you can say something about how we've got critical theory as a, as a paradigm, either at the top or maybe it's un, underpinning at the bottom, I'm not quite sure, and the potential ways that one might go in terms of methodology and methods. Yeah. Yes, you're quite right that there's there aren't any kind of data collection, specific data collection methods in critical theory. It is more about, as you said, the underpinning theoretical framework, but also it can be used as, as, a, as a form of or a, a lens or a tool or a way to analyze the things. So for example, the, in, in the research that you mentioned, my colleague used interpretative phenomenological analysis and its methods of data collection, so interviews, and she anal- analyzed the data or the interview material using that framework. But then I came in as a philosopher to kind of interpret that interpretation or the analysis through critical theory. So it's a it's a funny kind of combination between kind of critical analysis and um, phenomenological data collection and analysis. But yeah, because I, I don't see that it's necessarily incompatible with critical theory that you would do qualitative research and and data collection and then use concepts for example from critical theory to analyze that data but it doesn't really give you any tools to collect data or generate data Mm. and i suppose and i can explore this with dave nichols when i speak with him and but one research method or methodology which does seem closely tied to critical theory is discourse analysis where discourse and the power which that discourse represents that's very much part of the critical theory family right that it is yeah yeah because that it has its origins in in of course Foucault's work and um it's one of those kind of approaches that can be made into a method, in a sense. There are a few others that I can think of off, off the top of my head. One is 
of course, assemblage theory that has been used in, in, in rehabilitation research too, and that comes mm. from Deleuze and Quattari's work. And then another one is kind of deconstructive reading, which comes from the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. So there are these, these kind of approaches or, or ways of reading texts and ways of approaching qualitative material that can be used as, as methods. But there's always the, <laughs> the annoying thing to remember that I think all of these that I mentioned, both discourse, analysis, assemblage theory and, and, and deconstruction, all of their authors say explicitly that, you know, this is not a method. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it can't be used as a method. But there's the, the point of them not being methods is that it, again, it needs the analyst or the researcher to use them or, or do the reading. So it's not method in the kind of, I guess, traditional sense. Yeah. So thinking about how critical theory might shape possible qualitative inquiry, I suppose one example that comes to mind is the work by a former guest on the podcast, Karimi Mascuto, who was, who is rather, a PhD student in Australia. I know you guys know each other, you're part of the kind of critical physio group. And so she came onto the podcast and it's got to be three or four episodes ago now, where she spoke about her critically orientated work, which looked to examine the biopsychosocial model in relation to back pain care. This is for her PhD. So, and talking to her, it became quite apparent how critical theory is shaping her research work that she's, and if we kind of make, think about what we talked about before about critiquing, kind of taking for granted assumptions and tradition and looking at power and all that kind of stuff, that she's examining the biopsychosocial model, which is this somewhat dominant theory of, of disease or pain or healthcare, and looking at the taken for granted assumptions within that model, such as power relations, ethical and moral issues, and how they relate to back pain care. And so with that, the sorts of methods that she's using, and I'm sure she'll forgive us for not getting all the detail completely right, Hopefully we won't, we won't be misrepresenting it, but the methods that she's, she's using is has kind of ethnographic flavors of participatory observations. So I'm guessing sitting in a room with a clinician and a patient and looking at how the biopsychosocial model plays out, but not just seeing how it plays out. I guess she's got a particular pair of glasses on, which are called kind of critical theory glasses, which you can buy from any major retailer. Um but that's giving her a particular perspective on the power and all the stuff I just mentioned about how it's how it's kind of happening, how it's, how it's playing out in front of her. And likewise, she's done a critical review, reviewing the research which has claimed to take a biopsychosocial approach and looking at all those sorts of things, power, where people's preferences lie in relation to the model. So I think it's a really good example to see how the theory can shape the methodology and inform methods. Yeah, um, I've read her, some of her work and um, I find it particularly interesting that, that she's critiquing 
something that has kind of originally developed to be a criticism of the dominant biomedical model. So I think there's definitely the kind of challenging the taken for granted aspect to it and also looking at the power relationship, kind of using these driving, motivating concepts and, and issues that arise from from critical theory to criticize now a, a pretty yeah dominant kind of holistic model of looking at especially back pain it's really often used in in that context what i would like to kind of also make the distinction between critical work in the sense of reading and and observing and employing these critical concepts and issues and ideas to that qualitative material and the kind of other type of approach that you might take is to read a particular theorist or a particular kind of focus that some theorists have taken and kind of using what they have written to understand what you are observing. So there's a stronger theoretical kind of focus that you could take or you could just, you know, use qualitative data generation methods and then trying to see and and kind of pry out these issues that that might be in, in whatever you're observing. Yeah. And I guess that you can. It might be the case that you can you can use the theory in to different degrees. That you can be a researcher that is just, uh, uh, you know. I guess you can have kind of a piece of research which is in the spirit of critical theory, which just yeah you know, pays attention to some of these, some of these kind of social or economic. In a phenomena, if you like, but doesn't necessarily go into a kind of huge kind of analysis, but just there's a kind of sense of how this how this writing takes place, and then like in in your work or I'm sure Karimi's work, there's a a need to be much more thorough, I suppose, and rigorous and dedicated to the to the philosophy and the theory as part essentially of immersing yourself in the work. Yeah, I guess. Uh, in my work, because I have a background in philosophy, so that's kind of unavoidable that I I really want to get deep into those those theories and and thinking. I like to use the expression "I'm thinking with a theorist" rather than "through" or or applying their work to whatever whatever I do. But it's fully legitimate way to approach phenomena critically without having to go through all of that kind of tedious philosophical work because there's also the danger of cutting through corners so to speak if I would take just a piece of text or one concept from a book by a critical theorist and just focusing on that without really understanding the context and background and the implications of that concept. So there's, it's really demanding sometimes to use these theories because they aren't, um, um, how to, how to say this diplomatically. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're right. I think that 
And I, when I've spoken to the grounded theorists and I speak to Puryo about phenomenology, that there is something about how these theories are, are used that you can badge something as a piece of critical theory work or research or it's a grounded theory or phenomenology or you can pay pretty little you're just paying lip service if you like to the to the actual theoretical premises or ideas so and then you begin to cut corners and you're not really being true true with a small t i think or maybe it's a big t small t i don't know true to the to the idea to the to the theory and i suppose that the the problem with that i suppose is that it's not what it says on the tin that it's badged as a particular approach but the analysis and the writing doesn't necessarily reflect the the underpinning ideas of that theory. Yeah, and there's a, a theoretical and um, kind of historical baggage to all of these theories. And also, I like to often say that you know, reading theory and reading philosophy is like learning a new language. And sometimes, you know, I might see someone use a, a word that has a lot of history in philosophy. But it also has an everyday meaning, and it is kind of used in an in an everyday sense, and it doesn't quite you know capture what the idea of that word might be. So there there are these kind of things that one just needs to be aware of again, and um, it's always a working progress in a way. Reading critical theory, there's a lot to read, there's a lot to understand. But it it shouldn't kind of put you off. Mm-hmm. My you're directing that at me, aren't you? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If my 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 um advice would be to just start somewhere and don't think you need to read everything in order to understand it, because theorists also they might have like early writings that are different to what they you know thought when they were older, because that happens to all of us, doesn't it? So um. It can be a lot of work, it can be tedious, but it's completely doable. Well, I suppose one final thing, seeing as you're seeing as you're here, well, it's not like we accidentally bumped into each other, but as you know, I'm speaking with Jenny Setchell about post qualitative inquiry and probably touch on the subject with David Nichols. So where this episode will probably sit is just before Jenny and Dave's episode. So it should be a relatively consistent or coherent jump from critical theory to post-qualitative inquiry and then to, to Dave's ask him anything. I suppose, so coming back to when you said nothing's really out of bounds in regards to what's up for critiquing, what what can possibly lie in the gaze of critical theorists. And post-qualitative inquiry has pretty much come from that that movement where critical theory has begun to question the assumptions even within qualitative researchers and the role of the researcher and this decentering of the kind of rational human and the thinking man, all that kind of stuff. And so there's this, it's a full circle or half a circle, but it's it seems to me, so I don't know if you want to say anything which will neatly lead on to Jenny's talk, which will be next about the connection between critical theory and post-qualitative inquiry or anything to to add to that? I'm in no way an expert on post-qualitative research, but yeah, there there is a connection or inheritance from from French critical theory that 
you know, leads to the kind of post-qualitative and post-human work that tries to decenter the human being or the human subject as the the kind of the only subject that matters and and should be you know put on a pedestal and um kind of that knowledge of that sub- subject is the goal of all research qualitative or otherwise so i i do find it compelling to some extent because i well obviously i haven't as i said i'm no expert on this and i haven't read as much as i perhaps should but there's the idea of decentering the human being is something that's it is quite critical in the age that we are living in, in which the very conditions for living, i.e., nature, the environment, is something that might destroy us. So, kind of the the idea that you know valuing other than human life. Is something that I think is really important for for understanding our world today. The idea of of the sovereign human subject is as long as the history of philosophy, really, um, almost as long as the history of philosophy. So it is something quite exciting to have that different kind of lens into understanding the human in in this kind of whole, the whole network of human and non-human and, and non-animal world. What would be your, your advice to someone that wanted to read a bit more about critical theory, given the range of names and authors and movers and shakers over the years? Where would someone start? What would be an accessible way into critical theory? I would say that a good general introduction, but from the kind of philosophical point of view, would be good to read. And then I would also advise people to look at how qualitative researchers have written about critical theory, how they have used looking into uh, research from other fields than physiotherapy because it's always useful to see how other people have utilized any kind of theory to see work that has been published and i i guess from from there uh, once you've kind of started reading introductions and and have a general idea of what type of theories you you think that are interesting and you want to read more then focus on on one theorist at a time <laughs> so i have a tendency not to do that and uh you know it can really do your head in um so yeah focusing on one one theorist at a time is really useful and whenever this is a really important one that i would like to say that whenever you are using a theorist and perhaps quoting them or paraphrasing what they say always try to even if you're using a secondary source, always try to go to the primary source to check the context, to check that you have really understood what they are saying in that primary source, because you can't really ever trust a secondary source in the sense that it is always written through 
the understanding of whoever has written that piece of secondary writing. So I guess this would be my quick advice. Brilliant. That's really helpful. I think what I was going to say is just in regards to critical theory and qualitative research is to probably for me to recommend the first the first ever qualitative research book that I purchased or read, I think, and I'll link these in the show notes, is by Jerry Willis and it's called Foundations of Qualitative Research, Interpretive and Critical Approaches. That's really good and that breaks down much, if not a lot more of what we've been talking about. That was a good entry point for me. Yeah, I, I also read the critical theory chapter in it and it it is really clear it's clearly written it's really approachable it doesn't use the jargon that usually comes with kind of philosophical critical approaches so it, it is a really good way to a really good point to start anna thank you so much thank you very much ollie if you enjoyed this podcast visit www wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.